In the not-too-distant future, the survivors of a global ice age live on a perpetually moving train that is separated by class. The rich live lavishly in the front, while the poor live in horrific conditions in the back. The tail section survivors lead a revolt to take over the whole train, which leads them to learning the horrible truth of the train's engineer in the 2013 dystopian sci-fi thriller Snowpiercer. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Caleb Boucher. And this is Filmgasm. Welcome to the Filmgasm Podcast. Today's episode is one of Korean director Bong Joon-ho's greatest films, Snowpiercer. After three weeks of whimsical fantasy, it's fun to finally get back to some darker shit. And you can't get darker than class warfare in a dystopian train-centric future. So what's your history with this film? Uh, I had heard about it for years. This was actually my introduction to Bong Joon-ho. Um, was this, I had heard about it and was interested because I was like, ooh, at the time, you know, back when MCU had uh, clout, <laughs> I was like, Captain America doing something like outside and this looks pretty cool. Okay. Um, it had it had my interest. I was I was in college when it came out. I remember renting it back when Netflix still did DVD in the mail. It hurts to say that. Um, <laughs> and I was blown away the first time. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Like you know, this came out right before John Wick kind of took over action. So like, and I still argue that the action in this is still absolutely insane. But watching it on the repeat, I forgot just how like much of a lived-in ward this feels like that. Yes, there's cool action scenes, but this movie cares just as much about its characters and its stories and like it does its action, which makes it that much more enthralling to watch. And yeah, I I loved it when I first saw it. I you know, watching in here years later for the podcast, I still love it. This movie is fucking awesome. I I echo everything you said. Um I watched this for the first time in 2015. I don't remember the circumstances. I think you might have recommended it to me or a family member or somebody, but I, I watched it. I think I got it through Netflix in the mail as well. And this was also my intro to Bong Joon-ho. I've since seen all of his films, but one. I was trying to get to Mother for this episode, but I ran out of time. Um, But, you know, I'll watch that eventually. I've heard it's amazing. But uh, I was blown away by just how original this was and how exciting and engaging and the amazing set design for each car the vibrant characters, the powerful, poignant, you know, fuck everything kind of ending this has. Like, I, it's just a very kind of snapshot of a dystopian thriller that I don't think really got nearly enough attention as it deserved. I was hoping that after, you know, Parasite took Best Picture and Bong Joon-ho won three Oscars and he became this kind of global name that people were going to revisit his other films and they'd be talking about him more. And that. I think that happened in certain circles, but it didn't happen nearly to the level I was hoping. And No Pierce is one of those films that, like, if you know it, it's awesome, but it didn't do that great. And, you know, kind of got overshadowed by a subpar TV show that has since kind of fallen off the radar. Yeah. And I don't want to overstep anything you may have put in the production notes on this movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of that, I'll at least say this much because I, like, I don't overstep the production notes. Um, 
I don't blame audiences in this case. I blame the fact that the goddamn Weinsteins were involved with this fucking thing for its American uh, distribution. I I have a I have a funny Bong Joon Ho Harvey Weinstein anecdote that I found that I just loved. So yeah, I got a, a bit about that, but yeah, yeah, like, actually, I don't want to step over what you got, but I blame them and their notoriousness for things like this not getting the release they deserved. It doesn't fucking surprise me when those those fuckheads were involved. Well, I think like I mean I, I bet. They're a big reason of why Bong Joon-ho never really did another English language film. Like he stayed in largely in Korean uh, markets. But um, I think Okja, which he did with Netflix, was like the next, the other like close to an English language film is largely in Korean, but was a Netflix distribution. But other than those two films, he's only done Korean films. Yeah, it. Dude, the stories that that could be a whole podcast. The stories about those two idiots. Um, oh. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but the whole interview where Rob Zombie just shits on them has been like circulating online and like how much he hated working with them for his two Halloween films. Yeah, that, um, for those of you who don't know, I'll put it like this he was contracted to do a third Halloween film, he was contracted because the first one was such a huge hit, and Halloween 2 was a hit too when it came out. As divisive as that fucking film is, it was a hit. Um, but he hated working with them so much. He said, I'll do your second film under two conditions. You let me do what I want with it. And you, I'm not doing a third film because he was so done with them. Yeah. Everyone, the Weinsteins have, you know, as we learned a few years ago, uh, they're fucking monsters who destroyed so many lives and tainted so much art. So yeah, they, what pissed me off the most about it is how everyone kind of new like there was no this wasn't a shock to anybody this was a like oh finally some justice like people were making jokes at the oscars about like hey you know hey don't you know if you have too much champagne don't get in the car with harvey <laughs> like what the fuck man <laughs> yeah like why wasn't i don't know that's the whole thing about like hollywood and letting people like this have this kind of power instead of like taking them down sooner like they should have been and it oh. God, like, don't joke about it. Do action. And then on that note, the guy, people who took who took action, don't be controversial also. That doesn't help your cause. Where was my going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, well, I'm glad that Harvey's in prison. I hope he dies in there. Uh, yeah, we'll see. So, my question to you. This film is largely, you know, the result of an attempt to stop global warming so my question to you why is global warming a myth and when will the libtards finally shut the fuck up about it i want to fucking exit this interview <laughs> no no i just i wanted to see your face uh no my real my real question <laughs> i hate you uh the different train cars that they enter through at, on their journey to the engine every car has its own separate design and use and they're all very, they all stand out. So I'm curious, which train car was your favorite? Oh, excuse me. Uh, probably the fish tank one, because I was just impressed that they had a working aquarium as a fucking car. <laughs> yeah, that was neat. And I, I love that they, you know, we've got thousands of people 
suffering and like eating each other in the back of the car and you've got an entire car for fucking manta rays and sushi <laughs> yeah that they can even make a point to tell you they can only do like twice a year or some shit like that like then why have it it's yeah it is so it's it's so excessive and like it, when when you have all of humanity on a train car trying to survive when everything else on earth has perished sushi should be the last fucking thing on your mind like that should not even be in consideration but these rich assholes are just you know they got a whole car that's a sauna like are you kidding me these dicks <laughs> yeah like things that shouldn't matter anymore luxuries go away when the apocalypse happens i think that's pretty like you know an okay thing to say yeah i mean look they had a whole train car dedicated to them still being able to like rave and get high and party and i was like why there's a nightclub car i mean what the shit this is i, I if i was curtis i would be killing everybody <laughs> yeah i'd be like you could literally have all the people in the back actually live in these and make this an even more sustainable train yeah why do you need partying my my favorite car was the junkie car like there's one car where there's just a bunch of people just getting high off that chronol stuff and i remember thinking like you have a car specifically dedicated to just getting high and passing out are you are you serious right now and yeah. of course it's right next to nightclub car you know you get fucked up in there you go take a rest in junkie car yeah i'm like this is really a car like you just go get high to the point like they're so strung up he's stealing the chrono and they're just there they're not recognizing what's happening i do love that they later show up at the end like <laughs> like the nightclub people are like there they are get them yeah <laughs> even though they spent a long amount of time just standing there not really doing anything no nah. um i loved the swimming pool car i thought that was so stupid like are you kidding? What a waste of water. Why are you? Oh my God. Just... A swimming pool car. Never it's... trust the rich in, in any dire situation ever. Yeah. Don't never, especially because then as you get to the back, you're like, you guys could have done more for the back. Like sweet Jesus. Yeah. You're feeding them roach, like roach bars and just hoping they oh. are just unhealthy enough that they can't revolt against you. That's what, that's their plan. Just, Keep them, keep them in the dark and point, you know, trick them into thinking you got bullets. <laughs> yeah. God, uh, it's so gross to me out. It's when they find out what those bars are actually made of. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk at length about that scene down the road. Uh, good God. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. The, look, it, is it very inventive for the movie? The amount of different like cars, like what each car function is that we see at least. Mm hmm. Yeah, but my God, is it like... And again, I think this is Bong Joon-ho kind of doing his class critique that he did so brilliantly with Parasite years later. Mm -hmm. um, but my God, it's like both fascinating to see on like a production design level, but so infuriating as like, these guys are living like fucking rats in the back. Meanwhile, we have cars dedicated to goddamn swimming pools and saunas and sushi. Like, what the fuck? I was like fully expecting one of the cars to have like, you know, those like mechanical like pony rides outside of grocery stores. Oh, yeah. Like a, a line of those. And it's like the amusement park car. I was, dude, I was shocked we didn't have like straight up. I was shocked there wasn't like a sex car. 
Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I guess people just, you know, fuck in the Sonic car. Yeah. Ooh, that's that's very sweaty and kind of gross, but <laughs> well, according um, to the graphic novel, there's supposed to be at least a thousand cars on this train. Oh, so there's there's a sex car somewhere. You can't tell me there isn't. <laughs> yeah, there's orgy car. Just I hope you don't have to go through like church car to get there. Like, where are you going, my son? Oh, uh, 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 uh nowhere. <laughs> you nowhere. Sure God, the the smell anytime you open that car to quote Patton Oswalt. <laughs> yeah, just a a fog of fuck fumes. Yeah, that'd be. Oh God. <laughs> oh, dear God. That's my. Uh, that's all you got. You, you do you have a question? I I do somewhat. I thought really long and hard about this. AK maybe five minutes ago as soon as we started. And that is, my friend, out of all the versions of the apocalypse we've seen in the film, like in this one, it's a winter apocalypse. Yeah. Which one would you consider the more favorable one to survive in? Do I have to survive? Can't I just die in the initial? No, you, 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 nope, you have to survive in this case. Ah. All right. Um, hmm. I okay. So in this scenario, the the event happened. Earth is all but destroyed, and there's just pockets of survival. Yes. Um. I think I could survive the best in a Walking Dead style apocalypse. Ah, zombie style one. Okay. Zombies, because I know how to handle that. You stay away from people. You kill anyone who comes near you, and you just don't go into any dark spots and, you know, maybe pad up, maybe, well, wear some pads. So zombies can't bite you. Like there's easy know. ways to survive that world that nobody thinks of in these movies or or series. Yeah. Especially the walking ones. It's one thing if it's like the Dawn, the dead remake ones where you're like, oh, fuck shit, that. I, I don't want to live in fast zombie apocalypse. No, 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 no. Yeah, that, that, that sucks. But slow zombie apocalypse. It's like, okay, I think I can do this. Yeah. Go live on an Island. Surround it with with like sea mines mm. and shit. Like, yeah, right. Just live on a goddamn island. Just go to an island. Clear it out. Yeah, it is. Nobody ever just clears shit out. They're always like, "There's too many zombies over there." Oh no, right. There's too many of the dead or walkers or biters because they won't just fucking say zombie. And yeah, nobody just thinks, "Well, we've got weapons. Go take care of it." <laughs> this does not have to be the apocalypse. This could be easily taken care of. We can get right back to shit. As yeah. it usually is. Shoot them in the head and move the hell on. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, ideally, the apocalypse I'd most like to be a part of is the uh, the apocalypse in the movie Knowing, where the sun just wipes out the entire planet and I get vaporized immediately and don't have to worry about surviving the apocalypse along with the rest of humanity. It's all just gone in a flash. That's my ideal apocalypse. I don't even know what happens till it's happened. All right, Jesus. I'd rather be vaporized by the sun in an instant than, you know, see the meteor coming or watch society fall. I'd I'd rather just die immediately. Right, the meteor coming or like Daphne like in New York the water just hitting you like something quick. Something just really quick. In the meteor situation like we can't even, you know, regrettably we we don't have Bruce Willis anymore to take care of that. 
And I'm sure as hell not going to rely on Ben Affleck to do it. So it's going to kill us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of the Roland Emmerich ones scared me because, dear God, the destruction. <laughs> I feel like in a realistic situation, there's no way any of us survive an Independence Day style apocalypse. Like against a highly intelligent, organized, technologically superior alien race, we're, we're dead. There's no, no we're, we're screwed. We don't have a president like Bill Pullman. That's we don't. Why. We don't have an MIT genius like Goldblum to figure out how to send a virus from a 1996 Macintosh to an alien society on the moon. So you know, no. No, yeah, I'm with you. I would hate. I would hate a Moonfall one. You know, I didn't really like that movie all that much. But dear God, the things on that. I'm like, fuck that, man. I don't. I think. I don't want to live in like Mad Max style apocalypse. That looks like hell. See, I was going to say, I actually would be kind of cool with that. If I was like one of the lucky few that a car that could fuck people up with though. If you have like, you know, a monster truck with spikes and you really enjoy wearing leather and straps and shit, and you have zero regard for human life. That's your, that's your world. I think I would thrive then. I think (laughs) I would thrive. Would you be the Ayatollah of rock and roller? Would that be you? I would. I would. I get zero regard for human. I'd be like, fuck you, it's the apocalypse. I am surviving. Um, I think I could deal with like Westworld because I try to be nice to robots. I think that I'd be one of the one, I think I'd be spared. You're gonna try to be nice to them, or you're gonna try to fuck them. What are, you, what are you actually doing here? Consent does not, you know, consent transcends species. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'll fuck the robot if the robot wants me to fuck them. I think that's a fair trade there. <laughs> you gotta ask. You don't just take it in the attic. So, yeah. You gotta, you know, consent. Be nice. The robot if it wants me to fuck them. Yeah. You gotta... It's, we're talking about artificial intelligence here. We're talking about sentient life. So, yeah. You gotta ask. What if it's more, what if it's more of a Skynet apocalypse? Like Terminator. Oh, I'm dead. I'm not. I'm not joining. I'm dead. I'm not. I'm not fighting. You can't fight that kind of army. You can't. <laughs> you don't want to join the resistance. I'm probably going to be vaporized in the initial nuke. So you know, I'll just. I'll. I'll. I'll take that. Well, we don't live in Los Angeles. They didn't just nuke Los Angeles. They nuked like the entire world. Los Angeles was just. I don't know what you're talking one. about. That was just the first bomb. You know, that actually brings up a good question of how the hell the humans even survived if they nuked most of America. Like, there'd be radiation all over the country. Yeah, that never comes up in the Terminator movies. Uh, you'd think that would be enough to just wipe it. You know, the bombs get most of us, and then the fallout gets the rest of us. But nope, Skynet fucked that up. Skynet's- yeah, it's amazing in movies, radiation. <laughs> Skynet's what? No. Um, I'm trying to think of other like apocalypse situations. Like, what about like, uh, like the road? Kill me. That movie's depressing as fuck. Just kill me. I don't want to live in any world where like I have to worry about someone trying to eat me. Yeah. Right. Ooh, recent one. Speaking of eating, Last of Us. More recent one. Hmm. See, that combines zombies, cannibalism, and fucking, like, tyrannical government. So I don't I don't want to live in that one at all. <laughs> that sounds awful. 
Okay, fair enough on that one. I am on that note looking forward to season two. Me too. It's a great show. Um, great game, but I don't want to live there. Yeah, yeah, no, I I I I, I agree. Um I just thought that um I look unless I had um the town to myself like uh Nick Offerman's character did in that beautiful, beautiful episode. Yeah, I, I'm good. Um what's oh it was a goofy one, Water Ward. <laughs> well, I don't know how to drive a jet ski, so I don't think I'd thrive very well there. I could swim, but not for very long. Fair enough. You're not Kevin Costner. Got that. Nope. I'm not Gilman fighting Island Dennis Hopper. I haven't seen Waterworld, so I don't I don't know the details. <laughs> Apparently my dad stands by how awesome that film is. I'm like, no, it's not. So does Colton. He wants to do it on the show. So I actually have it scheduled for later this year. We me and him are gonna do Waterworld at some point. God damn it. <laughs> uh yeah, I mean I there's no ideal apocalypse. You know, they're all gonna suck. But I hope initial the best you can hope for is you die in the initial attack and you don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Or honestly, the most ideal would be going back to the original pick with The Walking Dead. But in the later seasons when they started forming different communities and you end up in a place like Alexandria, like that would be ideal. We're like yeah, you know it's kind of bad out there, but you're still living a, a pretty decent life. I ideally, I you know, if, if I'm, you got to be a leader. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta take over something. You can't be a peon in the apocalypse, or you're gonna die. You got to be the guy running the show. So I think you got to take a little bit of Rick Grimes, a little bit of Negan. You know, protect people, but also thin the herd and weed out the weak. Okay, Negan fucking Junior. Yeah. I think that that baseball bat was was the right way to go. I would have done the same thing. All right. Well, I know I'm Rick Grimes in the situation, which means I'm just going to take you down and put you in my prison. See, you should have killed me. That's what you should have done. That no, I, mean, I will. In real life, I will. I'll, I'll do it without remorse. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> if the apocalypse ever happened and we ended up in that situation, if I had to trust anyone to shoot me in the back of the head, it's you. Appreciate it, buddy. <laughs> if you got bit by like a zombie, you're like, kill me. I would have no more of like, oh my God. I'd be like, yeah, sure. Okay. Bam. Gotta find a new friend now. Yeah. Turns out I just got like, you know, cut on some jagged metal. That wasn't even a bite. You just overreacted because you finally had the opportunity. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a cool. That was a good question. I like that one. Uh, well, with that, let's get into snow. I don't want to live in the Snowpiercer world. I'll tell you that right now. This looks like absolute I, hell. In the featurettes dude. I watched, Bong Joon-ho basically compared the the uh, tail section to Auschwitz. Dude, I look that and the day after tomorrow. Okay, I'm not a cold person for the most part. So, like, if this apocalypse happens, kill me, fucking kill me. If I could get on the actual arc, I think uh, the movie 2012 would be an interesting apocalypse to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you're not in like the Himalayas or DC or LA, like or Vegas or, or Yellowstone, you'll be you'll be fine. Almost anywhere that got really fucked in that movie. Yeah, just make it to. I think it was I think it was Nepal where they were building the arks, and yeah, I, I, I thought that movie was underrated. I thought that was pretty cool. As far as that's disaster porn goes, that's a fun one. Edinburgh knows how to make disaster porn. He's good at it. Yeah, I love how that movie makes zero effort to explain this. 
They just say like, oh, neutrinos in the Earth's core and some shit. It's like, you don't know. Just stop it. Nobody cares. Yeah, right. It's like no one no one gives a shit. We're here to watch LA explode. So give us. Yeah. Your film's called 2012. So we know that you're inherently basing this off the idea that the world was going to end in 2012. Like, that's all I need to know. I actually forgot. Like, everyone was freaking out. I, I found I remembered like three days after it happened. After the day that I'm like, oh yeah, the world was supposed to end. Oh right, hey, look at that. It's 2013. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so my main sources for today's episode um are the featurettes available on the Blu-ray of Snowpiercer, including short documentaries about production, the characters, set design, and the graphic novel. The Blu-ray supplementals are actually pretty useful. Uh they all chatted about their involvement in the film. Bong Jun Ho was super excited to do this. Everyone was super excited to work with him. So there was a lot of content of them just talking about this. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's always nice when, you know, they're excited to do it. It makes it the movie better. Dude, Ed Harris talked about how much fun he had doing this. That's awesome, because he only has, like, one scene in this entire movie. Ed Harris doesn't talk about anything. <laughs> he stays the hell away from these things. Especially sci-fi, you know, I think he's still got some PTSD over the abyss. So I'm surprised he was willing to go back to the sci-fi route with this movie. I okay, yeah. yeah. I, oh yeah, he was in the abyss. He yeah, he has all that stuff from the abyss. Well, he I um I recently watched uh, State of Grace for the first time, a 1990 gangster thriller that he did with Sean Penn and Gary Oldman. Fantastic fucking movie. But oh, um, and Harris had was still dealing with some some physical injury that he had on the set of the abyss which he'd done the the previous year and he still will not talk about his experience on that movie he had so he hated it so much he was injured he almost drowned like he has nothing but contempt for the abyss <laughs> okay fair. all right uh i i i i guess he's not supporting the upcoming 4k release of it then nope that movie's finally available to stream, by the way, if you've been wanting to see The Abyss for a long time but have been unable to find a DVD copy. Yep. That, uh, True Lies, Titanic, and Aliens are finally getting 4K releases. True Lies and The Abyss are finally able to stream. Cameron's, I guess, better late than never. James Cameron. James Cameron. I'm glad he finally succeeded in raising the bar, and now we can finally get our 4Ks. Yeah, right? I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, because I have like a cheap uh, knockoff uh, bootleg Blu-ray of True Lies that needs to be replaced with a with a proper release. And uh, I have a DVD of The Abyss I still have not watched. Nice. Proud of you. Just yeah. wait for the 4K at this point. Well, I still want to watch the movie, but I'm not dropping 30, 40 bucks on a movie I might not like, so I'm going to watch it first. That's yeah, that's smart. That's smart. <laughs> uh, Snowpiercer began life as the French graphic novel Le Transpers Neige, which was published in English as Snowpiercer. It was first published in 1982, had two sequels published in 1999 and 2000, respectively. It was originally conceived by authors Jacques Loeb and artist Jean-Marc Rochette. The sequels were written by Benjamin Legrand, who replaced Loeb. An epilogue was published in 2015, was written by Oliver Bouquet. So it's very French, uh, and I read this, uh, the first installment of four, because uh, the movie's largely inspired by the first segment, 
And the movie has fuck all to do with the graphic novel. The only thing Bong Joon-ho adapted was all of humanity is living on a train that is constantly circling the globe. That's it. All the characters were him and um, the other screenwriter, uh, Kelly Masterson. So I find that funny. Like he wanted to adapt this graphic novel he loved, but he also did not want to do anything with anything about it. <laughs> that I, it's like the classic um, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Like I really like this thing, but I'm going to make it my own thing. Pretty much, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the graphic novel follows two tail section rebels as they fight their way to the front of the train as the rich attempt to detach the tail section cars and kill everyone who's not in first class so the train can move faster because it's starting to slow down. That's that's the, the whole story of the first one. And it's 112 pages. Uh, there's not a lot of character development, admittedly. All the characters are French because it's a French graphic novel. And uh, I feel like the movie just had better character development, had a wider range of ethnicities. You know, it's all of humanity on this train. It's not just going to be Americans or French. Like, you know, you've got everyone in the movie. Mm. Uh, and I, I thought that I, this is one of the rare instances where I think the movie is actually way better than the source material. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. I haven't read this, but I won't take your word for it where this is better than the source material yeah i bought it at half price books for like a few bucks because i thought oh we're doing snow piercer i should check this out but uh yeah, admittedly pretty pretty ble pretty bland and also the uh the art is it's all black and white so there's not really a lot of uh like the art could could have been better too admittedly like it's not a very good story like i don't really see what bong saw in this but i'm glad he saw something because we got this great movie out of it yeah no it look at the end of the year, like you're not a fan of or not a fan of it, but like it's like you said, he saw something, he made a really good move out, movie out of it, so I can't exactly complain on that front. True. Uh, yeah, Bong Joon-ho was a big fan of the graphic novel, felt his adaptation needed to have a fresh take on the material, so he saw value in this, but also was like, I can do this better, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, apparently, he just read the whole thing at a comic book shop, just stood there reading it. And just read the whole thing standing there in one in one go, which is pretty cool. I'm surprised no one said like, "Hey, you gonna buy that? <laughs> Do you want to buy that and go home?" <laughs> um, yeah. So he discovered the graphic novel in a comic shop in 2005 while he was filming The Host. When he decided to adapt it as a film, he reportedly said, "Quote: I had to come up with a completely new story and new characters in order to create a new dynamic Snowpiercer that was packed with cinematic exhilaration." So. He recognized, like, I can't tell this story on camera with people being into it. I need to make something else. Okay, okay. I'm tracking. Okay. Yeah, I respect that. I like that. Usually I'd be against that, but, you know, I guess I'm not against changing the source material if the source material's not that good to start with. Well, I'll say, Mr. You're you're being a real contradictory person right now. I realize that. I realize I'm being a real hypocrite because I've I've gone on record multiple times, especially with Stephen King, saying like the source is there, don't change it. But if the source is not that great and you want to turn it into something better and you succeed, you know, go ahead. John Carpenter I did that with the thing. I think in general, you if a director wants to change the source material, they can have at it. At the end of the day, because I'm of the mindset with a lot of like and Stephen King and them themselves have said it, nothing's taking away their book that will still be there for you to purchase and buy and read. So um 
I've never been one to be like, they have to follow it to a T. Like, I don't think they have to, but they take that risk if they deviate that it may not be as good. But I mean, also, if you adapt it fairly straightforward, you take the risk of it not being a really good adaptation. So the risk is there no matter what. It's just we don't know until we see it. There's only really like two big adaptations of books that I read and loved that I thought were such terrible adaptations. that I just wonder why you even bothered to do this. And one is the Dark Tower. And the other is Percy Jackson. The movies, not not the show that's been pretty good. The movies from 2010 and 2013, like both those instances are like, did you even like this book? Like, why did you want to turn this into a movie if you're going to completely gut out the point of, of the book? Like everything everybody liked about it, you're just going to snatch it away, bury it and inject it with your own bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Dark Tower one hurt. I remember watching it being like, dude, what the hell? Like, I've waited so long for this goddamn adaptation. And oh, god, luckily, once things have changed, Mike Flanagan is supposed to give us hopefully a redemption with his TV show, uh, with Prime. And I'm very excited with that about that, like, very, very excited about that. God willing, I really hope that that does happen. In the Dark Tower, the second Roland said something along the lines of, I don't care about the tower. I was like, yep, you, you did you even read the fucking book? That's literally the whole point of his character is all he cares about is the tower. Yeah, I know. I was like, when they made it to where he cared about the kid, I'm like, oh boy, like, guys, you missed the point. He starts out and a raging asshole and he gets better as the books progress. Yeah, that's the point. You can't shove seven books of character development into an hour and a half movie. Jesus. Ah, but yeah, so, you know, I want, I want good art on all levels. And if, you know, the adaptation deviates, but it's still good, great. But just usually in my experience, when it does deviate that hard, it's not great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, but I mean, like, then you can be like the shining deviated and it was an awesome movie. But it, yeah, it really depends on what the hell they do with it. it it's always dependent on what the hell they want to do with it. And if if they are going to deviate, are they doing it because they they do generally have a love and respect for the source material, but they have this idea that they think will work? Or are they just doing it because, you know, fuck this source material? True. You know, look at 2022's Firestarter. That was definitely a fuck the source material situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I Snowpiercer worked out because Bong's a better storyteller than the than the other guy. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. he is. <laughs> he wrote the first draft of the screenplay after his friend, director Park Chan-wook, uh, through his production company, Moho Film, obtained the rights to the story for Bong to adapt. And if you remember, if the name Park Chan-wook stands out to you, uh, that's the director of Old Boy. Oh, that I was like, that does stand out to me. They're buddies, and Park used his production company to wrangle the rights to Snowpiercer so Bong could adapt it, which is a pretty fucking... Awesome bro move right there. That's a super awesome bro move. Yeah. Uh, screenwriter Kelly Masterson was hired to rewrite the script. Uh, he had previously impressed Bong with his work on the film Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is a fantastic uh, thriller starring Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's Sidney Lumet's last movie, 2007. Epic, epic movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, definitely. If you can find that, uh, check it out. I have a DVD. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but it's a fantastic movie. 
Nice. Uh, you did remind me that I, I need to see if that 4K of Old Boy is still out because that's a fucking kick ass movie. Yes, yes. I got to see that on the big screen uh, last year for the re release, and that was an experience. My God. Uh, Dude, he came on screen at, like to uh, introduce it, and he warned everybody: if you haven't seen this before, uh, brace yourself. Uh, you might you might be disturbed. So you know, just accept that that that's going to happen, or or you can go. So, no. I, I I love yeah. that he had to come and be like, you know, warning: this might be too much for you. Oh, dude, Old Boy's one of those. As much as I love that movie, if I was a short one, I'd be like, look, I'm I'm not spoiling it because you you have to. If you don't know the twist, you got to like watch it, not knowing a damn thing. Oh yeah. Um, but I'd be like, look, it's going to be a lot. It's going to. I'll tell you, it's, it's a taboo subject. So if it's not something you're going to be okay with, you might not want to watch this movie. Yeah, it's it's one of the most shocking visceral brilliant films of the 2000s it's it's fantastic i'm surprised we haven't we never did it on the show we might we might do it on the show at some point because that would be a fantastic uh episode it would i do remember i got you i remember because that was when i would like tell you to watch these things knowing fully well what was the content of the movie and i just wait for the text that i would inevitably get from you yeah when we first started the website I remember like we would we, we we made a pact to like watch everything. We started like just throwing shit to the wall, recommending weird shit to each other and reviewing it. And old boy was one of those first films. So we were like, Jesus Christ, what a what a film. I remember you text me like, hey, I'm finally watching. I was like, OK, cool. And then I was like, I'll wait. And like two hours later, I get a text going, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, to the end, didn't you? <laughs> I believe old boy is the second part of uh, Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy. Yeah, yeah, he uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance are the other ones, I believe. Austin and I did an episode on Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance way back on the first run of the show and just fell in love with that crazy movie. And just it, it reminded me a lot of like Fargo, the whole idea of like a simple plot can go, you know, everything that can go wrong will go wrong and turn into a nightmare. It was that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. yeah, I still haven't watched Lady Vengeance, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I wanted to watch the other two just to complete the trilogy, but. No, Old Boy no. is one of those that like everyone knows it. I was like, I gotta find my way to get my hands on this one and watch it, and I did. I'm hoping for like a 4K Vengeance trilogy box set. That's that's what I want. Mm, maybe, but I think the only thing stopping is how much more popular Old Boy is compared yeah. to the other two films. I know, I know. Well, whatever, whatever I find cheaper first <laughs> is kind of where I'm at because I I don't own Old Boy. I haven't. I want it, but I also you know. I have a, I have a personal limit. Otherwise, I'd go broke in a, in a week buying movies. God damn it! Uh, well, together, uh, Bong and Masterson they ended up cutting a romance subplot they originally had. They originally had Curtis have a love interest, and they just decided to cut that and focus more on the revolution, which I think was a smart way to go. Yeah, it wasn't too much sense in the in the movie, and Hugh Curtis is as a character to get bogged down with a love interest yeah he doesn't give a shit like he's he's here for one reason he's a very focused person in this movie yeah he has one thing on his mind like the entire movie yeah um so chris evans was cast as the lead curtis bong was initially hesitant to cast evans due to his recent boost in stardom thanks to captain america and the avengers uh bong felt he was too muscular for the role but they ended up covering him in you know coats and scarves and shit and bong warmed up to the idea and chris evans you know 
blew it out of the water. He did a great job. Oh, yeah, he was great. It honestly, it makes me wish he would pick better fucking films <laughs> post his time at Captain America because he is really goddamn good in this movie. I yeah, you know what? I agree. I can't think of anything memorable he's done post Captain America other than this. Yeah, what I've heard about, I thought, oh, that'd be cool, and then it, would, I hear it's not good. I'm like, well, okay, never mind. <laughs> uh, Tilda Swinton was cast as Mason, the front section's representative. The role was written for a male actor, but Swinton blew Bong away with her audition, and she became one of his uh, players. She also appeared in Okja. So, yeah, she just had a blast working with him, and he had nothing but great things to say about her as well. That's, yeah, okay. That's good. I if From what I, my brief research, it sounds like, because this was his first, like, major league, you know, I, currently now is only major English language film. Yeah. Um, Apparently, like, Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton then were like very like accommodating from what I understand and helped him out as much as they could. So he felt, you know, comfortable on, on doing a movie like this. Yeah. Cause uh, Bong Joon-ho, he does speak some English. He just, he doesn't, he prefers to speak Korean. So, you know, he had to give directions via translator most of the time. So that can get, you know, you know, frustrating. But uh, they were just so enamored by his skill as a filmmaker that they were all just like, holy shit. Especially uh, John Hurt, who was cast as Gilliam, uh, leader of the tail section. Bong had loved John Hurt since he was a kid. He saw the Elephant Man on TV and thought, this guy's an amazing actor. And then kept him in mind over, you know, 30, 40 years. I don't know how old Bong Joon-ho is. And uh, cast him at in this movie. And John Hurt had such a blast working for Bong. And he compared Bong's method of filmmaking to Alfred Hitchcock. Can you imagine your hero, like an actor you love, you've been watching since you were a kid. You bring him onto your film, you get to hire him. And he thinks you're such an artist. He compared you to Hitchcock. What's high praise? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's got to be just cloud nine level of pride. Yeah. And it, it kind of, that's what makes this kind of hurt more knowing that like, Something had to happen with his relationship with the wine scenes for him to never want to do like an American film again. Because everyone on this movie, and it sounds like all other films he's worked on, you know, have nothing but good things to say about this guy as far as him as a person, him as a filmmaker. Like it's nothing but great things about him. Oh, it was entirely it was micromanaging. It was the the Weinstein, especially Harvey, was constantly on set trying to get Bond to do things his way because he had his own ideas. That's entirely what it was. Yeah, and it's like, dude, that sucks because, I mean, granted, out of it we got parasites. Who am I to say, like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like that whole like butterfly effect thing, right? Like, out of it, we ended up with Parasite, which is a fucking another just really great goddamn movie. Um, But then it's like, what could we have gotten had the mind scenes just backed the fuck off of him? Well, every film Bong Joon-ho has done has dealt with this idea of class warfare and class struggle. So I don't think even if he had done more Hollywood films, I think it still would have had the same vibes, the same kind of, you know, he, he has he, he he wants to tell stories a certain way about certain things. I don't think that would have changed regardless of what language the film's in. Yeah. Uh, he brought Kang Ho Song on board to play um, Nam, the uh, security expert. He's 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 like his his go to guy. They're like best buds. He's in all of, almost all of his films, I think, starting with Memories of Murder. And he played the dad of the uh, of the poor family in Parasite, which probably might be his greatest performance. 
And oh wow, he looks way different. Parasite, I didn't make the connection. Oh yeah, he's one of the cops in Memories of Murder. Um, yeah, he's he's you see him throughout uh, Bong's career. He was in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance as well. Uh, yeah, nice. he's a he's become one of a an actor I I really look forward to seeing. Um, and then Ed Harris was cast as the train's engineer, Wilford. Harris became a fast fan of Bong's after watching three of his films. He uh, his agent reached out to him. And said, "Hey, Bong Joon Ho wants wants you as the as the I guess the villain. There's a lot of villains in this movie. Everyone's kind of a villain, really. Uh, yeah. Wilford in this movie, Snowpiercer, and he sent him the script. And Ed Harris was like, "Well, I don't know who Bong Joon Ho is, so I should probably find that out." So he went and <laughs> watched um, Memories of Murder, Mother, and The Host, and was like, "I fucking love this guy. Like <laughs> this guy's a great filmmaker. I want to work with him," which is cool. Man is art itself. Yes. He basically did say that. Like in the in the interview I watched, he was like, Yeah, I watched those three movies, and I just thought this man is a genius. <laughs> and, like this Ed Harris, like the most stoic, you know, don't talk to me guy, was like, I loved him and I wanted to be a part of it. It was so it was so weird to see that. Right? Him actually excited. <laughs> right? Yeah. He actually he said, um, he was he said about working on Bong's set, he said, I want to do this. I don't care what he's asking me to do because he's a really great filmmaker. Like he was just, he came to set and was like, I am at your mercy. You know, what's best. What do you need from me? Holy shit. This guy tamed Ed Harris. (laughs) Some director, it's really pleasing when you hear about like just the respect some of these directors have because they actually know how to like do their job basically. Yeah. He said that Bong Joon-ho had like a set that was so quiet and professional that Ed Harris was able to concentrate and just disappear into his role in a way he'd never been able to do on a set in any other portion of his career. It was just so focused on the moment, which is so cool. And you can see that throughout Bong Joon-ho's mm-hmm. whole career. All of his films deal with like every scene is a priority. And that is so like, I can see why Hurt was comparing him to Hitchcock because he worked the same way. Everything was methodical and everything was necessary. Well, you don't see a lot of filmmakers do that anymore. No, and especially like it makes sense with Bong Joon Ho because, like, you know, even my like limited knowledge, the guy's a genre bender with his films. Like, oh, yeah. So he has to make sure everything's important, everything has a point because, as we saw in Parasite, it was a drama in one second, a comedy in the next, a horror film, the fucking in the midway twist, you know, like in this film, it's it's action, it's sci fi, it's trying, like, he's constantly changing what the film is. So it makes sense to me that he is so particular about what um, the importance of the dialogue and the scene and everything happening in his films because it has to build off each other for what he's doing to make sense. Yeah, I agree. And it's a very effective way of of, of making a film. It's, uh, I mean, everything I've seen from him, I fucking adored. I think his weakest film is his first film, Barking Dogs Never Bite, but that was because, you know, he's still figuring it out. And even that, it's not a bad movie. It's just like really weird and uncomfortable because there's a lot of dog death. But- yeah, and and there's a lot of directors that their first film was not their best film. You know what I mean? Like, it's not exactly an uncommon thing. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. You, I mean, we've had directors have really great first films, but it's not uncommon for their first one not to exactly be their best work. True. But then three years later, he drops Memories of Murder on us, and holy shit, does he become the toast of Korea? Because that movie was a super tense, great serial killer movie that I, I watched with uh, Colton and I did an episode on it last year. And we were both just like, this thing fucking ruled. And we love this guy. 
So yeah, he's he's the man. Yeah, they yeah, look, I I could just honestly like other than like people like him and Park Chan Rook and just that kind of like cinema in that area, Asian cinema in general, Japanese, Korean, all that stuff. I could go on forever. Um, you know, you got stuff like that. You got stuff like I Saw the Devil, um, which if you haven't seen is really fucking good. Yeah, I've heard that one's been on my list for quite some time. It, it it's so good. It I don't want to give it away for you haven't seen, but like it it's cat and mouse with a cop and a serial killer, but not in the way you think. It's so goddamn good. Sweet. <laughs> and just ten yeah, like I just love of all the foreign cinema I love. That area of the world is probably my favorite just because of wh what they're willing to do with cinema, with genre, with character story, like everything they're just willing to do, you know, from stuff like that to things like Train to Busan or One Cut of the Dead, like films that are just like, we'll challenge you on what you think, you know, a film is. Takashi Miki is not their, you know, big name. Like what these guys are willing to do to like challenge you on what cinema actually is it makes it through when you watch these American films, you're like, that's kind of boring. Cause over here, they're doing the cool shit. Well, what I'm, what I'm constantly looking for as a film buff is original, creative, dynamic cinema that doesn't spoon feed me the script and treat me like an idiot. And I consistently find that in Korea and Japan specifically, because they treat their audiences like they're intelligent, smart adults who can follow this shit and just, you know, keep up. And I love that. And these the, the stories are so weird and freaky and unforgettable. Like, I've yet to really see, like, a Korean or Japanese film I didn't like. Like, I, yeah. they ne you can't stop thinking about them. After you watch it, it's like it sticks in your head. Like, what the fuck was that? Oh, even, yeah. And even when they do, like, dramas. Like, it's it's great. Yeah, you can't stop thinking about it. Even the ones I've watched, obviously kind of going on the more horror side of things for me, the ones I've watched, where they do put a lot of taboo subject material in there, you know, with Old Boy and um Itchy the Killer and um even like places auditions are willing to go. Um, these taboo subjects are willing to breach are like they make you fucking think. And you know, yes, a part of it's so they can shock you, but a lot of times they're putting you in there to tell their story, um, and to comment on something. So it's like the shocking part or like, you know, obviously a more recent uh, one with the sadness, right? Yeah. Yes, it's shocking. It doesn't leave you that what you just saw. But if you pay attention, like you were saying to the stories they're telling, they are trying to tell you something between the shock value. Whereas, and again, I'm someone who loves Hostel and Saw, so I'm not like downing those films at all. But those are films that are just trying to shock you and push you to extremes. Nine times out of ten just to do it. Um Whereas, yeah, in those countries, they're doing it, but trying to also make you think about other stuff. True. I mean, like I mentioned, you know, dramas like there was a movie I watched a few years ago for the Oscars. It was called Drive My Car. It was a Japanese drama about a guy who hires a driver and they start, a, you know, they, they start having a relationship. But what it was about, like it started out with this guy who finds out his wife's cheating on him. And before he can confront her, she dies of a brain aneurysm. And he, he has to deal with the knowledge that he can't ever get closure. And his company hires a driver for him and he starts venting to the driver and she starts venting her problems to him and they start becoming friends based on this shared trauma. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. This is brilliant character study. It's a great 
concept that's executed so well. It was a three hour long movie and you do not feel it. Like, that's what I want. I want, you know, a complete film where you don't feel the runtime, where you don't stop thinking about it, where you care about the characters. And I consistently get that from Asian cinema. Like, that's why I keep going back. It's not just because it's like freaky or weird. It's because it's fucking great storytelling. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic storytelling. It's it's I, I love what they're willing to do. And, you know, I know sometimes they they have things that actors do where they make like these weird faces or they do strange stuff. <laughs> that's kind of like exclusive to their type of cinema that I'm sure turns some people off, but that's to me the unique charm to it. Yeah. I mean, a story, but also insight to their culture insight to like how they, how they want to make films and what they do. Um, it's just, to me, it's really cool. Like uh, thinking about that, like, so with, uh, with that film, you don't feel the runtime, right? Even when you have your films that you're kind of scared at first, like one could have dead. I remember when I watched that, I thought, okay, it's a, a found footage zombie film. But this time coming from like I I think Japan, um, uh, you know Japan, how is this really that good? What's the big hubbub about it, right? Yeah. Watched it at first, being like, "Yep, it's exactly what I think it is." I'm gonna be fucking bored, and then it does in the beginning a fucking twist on you. Yeah. And I again, I don't. You've seen that one, right? Yeah, I watched that one. Yeah. Okay, right. So you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to ruin it for the audience. Yeah. But then when that happens, immediately I went, oh, shit, okay, what's this? And like I said, like you said, I, I was hooked. I was hooked into the story, the characters. I didn't feel a run. It got to a point that when it was over, I was like, oh, shit, it's over <laughs> already? Like, I was so invested. And I don't get that a lot with America. You know, like I've even commented before, for example, like Killers of the Flower Moon. As much as I liked that movie, I did feel its runtime after. But at first, after a while, I was like, please, please end so I can go to the bathroom yeah, there's just, you know, American film is losing its luster for me. You know, like I feel like, have I seen everything this country has to offer almost? Like, where's, I'm, I don't get a lot of surprises anymore. I mean, I still do, but not a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, I know you like to bust my balls when it comes to, like, dramas. I do think that's partly why I'm not always interested in watching, like, American dramas, because I just feel like it's, you know what it feels like to me? Why I'm tired of paranormal horror films. Because it's like the same thing. A character is having to go through a existential crisis. They have a lot of bad shit going on in their lives. They have to find themselves. They find themselves at the end of the movie. I'm like, oh my god, I have seen this before. This is all you fucking Oscars nominate. Like, Jesus Christ. For me, like, and I'm talking largely about new releases. Like, there's, you know, going to the past and finding gems from, like, the 70s, that still happens all the time. You know, mm -hmm. dynamic filmmakers, are, like, still exist in America, but... For me, like new releases, especially, it's like I've been eating at the same restaurant every day. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, you know, I finally tried that new Japanese place across the street. And I'm like, holy shit, this place is amazing. And I want to keep going there because I know I'm going to get good shit every time. The place I've been at for the past 30 years, like, yeah, occasionally they'll 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 nail it. But most of the time it's like I'm eating I'm eating reheated leftovers. Yeah. Because even outside the Oscar traumas, look at how we felt about the summer blockbuster season last year. It's just a lot of like, all right, seen that before. Okay. Yeah, we just spent, you know, a good hour and a half kind of, you know, bitching about Madam Web and the, the situation in, you know, superhero movies right now. And it's like, yeah, I want I want filmmakers to try as hard as, you know, 
I want them to act like their jobs depend on it. Because I, I, I need, I don't know, say I need American filmmakers to try. I need the American studio system to back the fuck off and let American cinemas work like they let their foreign like filmmakers work. Yeah. Yeah. The suits should pony up the dough and trust the people they've hired to make the movie to make the movie. Yeah. Because it's 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 getting to a point where it's showing. I mean, look at bringing it back to Bong Joon Ho. Look how successful Parasite was when it when it came out here in the states. Yeah. Um, look at the recent success of Godzilla minus one. Like it was, a, it's the third, unless it changed. Last I checked, the third highest grossing foreign film in America. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. I think it's either beat Parasite or Parasite's literally one spot above it. Uh, let's find out. Godzilla minus one. I know, I know the number one's crouching tiger hidden dragon. There's no way in hell is going to beat that because that thing was like a massive fucking domestic total here in the states. <laughs> yeah, it has surpassed uh Parasite, so it's it's fifty five million dollars. Uh, yeah, well done. Highest grossing Japanese film. Uh, in U.S. history. <laughs> yeah, so it's like to me, it's showing that like we're getting to a point where. A good, I won't say all Americans. Unfortunately, I did watch pe- some people when I first saw Godzilla, Mi- Godzilla minus one leave when they realized, oh, this isn't an American Godzilla film. I got to read subtitles. Oh, poo poo. Um, it happens, but the tides are turning. People are getting tired of the same old, same old crap we're getting from here, here from the studios, and they're turning to these films that are daring to actually do something new and different and treat us with some goddamn respect. And you know, I I credit I credit a large chunk of that to Parasite. That that film took over the conversation in a way I don't think anybody expected it to. It taught me personally so much about South Korean culture and the class struggle inherent in that country that I knew nothing about. And it's also just such a brilliant story. I mean, like you, you know, it, was, it made fifty three million dollars in America for a foreign film. That's a fucking get. That's amazing. Yeah, that's better than like some of the films that have already come out this year. Yeah, it won Best Picture at the Oscars, got a big boost from that. And I think once you know that made people start thinking about global cinema in a way that they haven't really started talking about it in a like they haven't been talking about it in a long time. I think since like Crouching Tiger. So like every few, you know, every decade or so you have a film that transcends country lines and people start talking about cinema on a on a world scale. And I, I love when that happens. Yeah, because, you know, as much as I say, like, hey, you know, like Lisa Frank said when I was talking about, like, you know, go support original stuff if that's what you want in theaters because you're not supporting it. Well, same with this. Like, if you guys want something new and different, get outside your comfort box and stop using the excuse of, oh, I got to read. Oh, my God, get over it. Yeah, Um, yeah, because guess what they do when they release our movies in our countries? They subtitle them. I know this. I've seen our films in foreign countries when I was deployed. They just subtitled the shit with England with the uh, um, Arabic, or I believe when I was in Dubai, but they were still speaking English. So other countries do it with our movies. We can do it too. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, this yeah, we got we got to move on. But this is this is definitely something we're all we're both passionate about. Just yeah, I couldn't help myself because we're talking about this type of you know with Mong Jun Ho and just this type of cinema. And, I I am just a fucking advocate for like foreign international cinema. I fucking love international cinema. A good movie has no language barrier, straight up. 
Uh, so I thought, I thought this was funny. This is a, a story I found about um, Bong Joon-ho's uh, clash with Harvey Weinstein. Uh, I think you'll like this. Oh, so, yeah, here we go. Bong Joon-ho often clashed with Harvey Weinstein. He frequently interfered in order to demand his version of the film. Among the many requests, the producer insisted on having uh, the fish scene removed in favor of more action. The scene where the uh, the front the front of train people, like the soldiers, face the back of train people, and they're like they bring out a, a, a fish and like put their axes in it to get it bloody. It was it was weird, but it was cool. Yeah, it doesn't. I still don't get the point of it, but it's a cool visual. Yeah. Uh, so Bong considered it his favorite shot in the film, and he was he he demanded to keep it in. Uh, he told Weinstein that he wanted to keep the shot for a personal reason, that it was a tribute to his late father, who was a fisherman. And upon hearing this, Weinstein apparently had a bit of a change of heart, said that family is very important to him, so he granted Bong permission to keep the shot. Later in an interview, Bong Joon-ho said, quote, it was a fucking lie. My father was not a fisherman. <laughs> He's just like, that'll get Harvey off my back. Oh, God. And Harvey, really? Family man? Okay, buddy. Um, yeah. Family values, I guess, you know, do not include a lot amount of rape. So, you know. Yeah, family va- values aside from rape, but whatever. Um, I love that. Bong's just like, what can I say to get this fucker off my set? I was like, it's, it was for, it's for my dad. Harvey's yeah, right? Party. It's for my dad. Just leave me alone, please. Uh, do you have anything? I don't want to step on your toes about this, but uh, the wine scene is bugging about the runtime after a test screening. I don't run with it. What do you got? So when I was looking on the Wikipedia, that's where I got this from. So I'm going to trust Wikipedia because it badmouths the wine scenes, and I always trust anything that badmouths them. <laughs> um, apparently, they had a test screening of the film, and Harvey insisted that they cut it. Because he was like, I guess it was a poor test screening. And he was like, you need you need to do all these cuts. Blah, 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 blah. And the, he refused. He was like, no, I'm not doing it. And then they, I guess they did another one that did better and convinced them to re... Oh, so that's what it was. He was like, where well, if you're not going to cut it, you're switching over to the Radius TWC brand that they had, which meant like a limited release. Mm-hmm. So they literally like... The wine scenes basically agreed but then sabotage the release of this film because he didn't give into their bands and cut the film. Like they demanded what absolute shit birds. Like just, I get why he was like, yeah, fuck Hollywood. And he went, he went back to doing his own thing. I totally get that. If I'd had, if that had been my one experience working with Hollywood, I would have left too. Oh yeah. I would mean like, fuck this. I'm, I can't work on these conditions. <laughs> I can't work like this. I was at a, <laughs> I went to see the who a while back in Vegas and uh, they were doing, you know, it's a great show. And then they started doing a, a bit from Quadrophenia and Pete Townsend started playing the intro to the song drowned. And he, somebody handed him the wrong guitar and he played it a little bit. He's like, no, no, no. Like, and somebody, a roadie came out, handed him another guitar. That was also the wrong guitar. And he freaked out and he literally said, I can't work like this. And then somebody brought him the real, the right guitar, and he was like, "Oh, okay." And immediately went into drowned. And I'm like, "Shit, he sounds fun, <laughs> right?" Like, I can't do this. Uh, okay, here I have it in front of me for better clarification here. Mm-hmm. So yes, the first test screen was not great; didn't go well. 
So Weinstein was like, hey, we need to cut more. They did a later one of Bong's original cut of the film, the one that we got, and the score was much higher. So with that, that's when a whole online petition came out saying, hey, free Snowpiercer. Um, Tilda Swinton and John Hurt supported it, saying, hey, listen to them. Release this fucking movie the way it should be. Yeah. So they did, but the, again, that was the caveat that it has to switch to Radius TWC, which gave it a limited release, I kid you not, in only art house cinemas. If you're wondering what those are, that's why they're limited. That's why there, there's not a lot of them in this country. God, what a! And, it's entirely it, because he refused to 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 bow to their demands. It's 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 petty. Yeah, and get this, but thanks to positive reviews, like oh hey, they actually like this this movie, which I'm sure then the wine scenes took credit for as well because they were notorious for that. Mm. They would all of a sudden take credit for this wonderful film if we got good reviews. Um. They would give it a wider U.S. release and play it in over. Wait for this number, Connor. Wait for this number. They would play it in over 150 theaters. Whoa. Holy shit. For the audience listening, a wide release film plays in the thousands, in the thousands across the country. Just so y'all know. I, I really hope that when Bong Joon-ho won Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best International Film at uh, for Parasite, he the like the wine scenes got bombarded with pictures. That picture of Bong making two Oscars kiss. I hope they just people sent sent them that relentlessly, and they just had to be like fucking Bong. I I I uh. This movie probably could have been a part of the what pissed me off about this. This film could have been a part of the conversation, but could have been a bigger hit. But the Weinstein's actively, because he didn't give into their demands, fucked him over. Yeah, one hundred percent. Well, Snowpiercer was still a modest hit, grossed eighty six million on a budget of forty million. So for a limited art house release, that's pretty fucking good. Mm-hmm. Has an IMDb score of seven point one. Rotten Tomato score of 94%, audience score of 72%. Critics consensus reads, Snowpiercer offers an audaciously ambitious action spectacular for filmgoers numb to effects-driven blockbusters. Everything we just fucking said. <laughs> oh no, are we becoming the critics? Oh god. We're the cri- no, we're what the critics should be, man. That's who we are. <laughs> we're the critics with the heart of film fans. That is who we are. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, the film was remade as a short-lived TV series, also called Snowpiercer, which aired on TNT for three seasons before it was canceled, with a fourth season already filmed and subsequently shelved. The fourth season is rumored to be airing on a different channel if someone picks it up. The show stars uh, David Diggs, Jennifer Connelly, Mickey Sumner, and others. Sean Bean later joined the cast as Wilford. Uh Ooh. I didn't bother because I have enough Snowpiercer with this movie. I don't need to see TV drain the life out of it. So I'm, I'm good. The moment I saw it was on TNT, I went, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, but they filmed the fourth season. So like, I, you know, maybe somebody will pick it up, you know, Hulu or Prime or somebody and just let that thing have its last gasp. Hopefully, but I'm just like, again, so like second tired of hearing about shows getting filmed 
like a season getting filmed and them saying shelve it instead of like because it's not the first time this is happened where like the streamers renew something and then like back out before it airs yeah. after it's been filmed. Yeah, again, physical media. Buy your shit and no one can take it away from you. Yeah, just buy physical. Yeah. Let's get physical. Physical. You're welcome for that. <laughs> Thank you, I guess. <laughs> uh so with that, let's before we get into the uh into our specific likes about the movie, uh, I do want to talk about this. So there's a reason we are doing Snowpiercer at this point. So we just did a double feature back-to-back weeks of Wonka. We did Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Then we did Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. We did the Princess Bride for Valentine's Day. And then we did this because there is a pretty convincing fan theory that Snowpiercer is intended to be a secret sequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, specifically the original one. Oh, the good one. No offense, Maja. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, Maja. You, you, you're wrong. Yeah, I, I don't agree. I'm I'm sorry, Maja. I don't agree with the stance that you have on the on the Giant Depp pedo remake. <laughs> I well, only it's only the original one. That's the only one that exists. <laughs> well, the Paul King one was pretty good, but yeah. Um, so this is the theory. Uh, this is from Screen Rant. Uh, Matt Pat on the Film Theorists on YouTube laid it all out really convincingly. Check that video out. Uh, but here's here's what I got. Willy Wonka has built a completely isolated factory from the outside world, meaning it is entirely self-sustaining. In addition, he specializes in producing weird foods and experimental modes of transportation, the Wonkatania, the Wonkamobile. These are skills that he passes on to Charlie Bucket, who is to continue Wonka's legacy. And this leads Charlie to abandon his original name and take on that of Wilford Wonka to honor his mentor. Years later, during the time Snowpiercer takes place, he builds a self-sustaining train foreseeing the devastated effects of the CW7 gas that is the cause of the eternal winter. However, in order to keep the train self-sustaining, he has to go to extreme measures to maintain the population, ordering the execution of certain percentages when it gets too high, or orchestrating revolts to maintain, as Wilford says, anxiety and fear, chaos and horror in order to keep life going. So with this in mind, Charlie Bucket, who is now known as Wilford Wonka, has used tactics and skills he's learned from his mentor, as seen in the tunnel scene in Willy Wonka, to create a world of decadence and imagination on a train, just as Wonka once did with his factory. He then even goes even further by borrowing Wonka's method for finding a successor by hiding messages in food, in his case in the eggs meant for Curtis, just as Wonka put golden tickets in chocolate bars. Interesting, huh? We're not done. <laughs> so, okay. if this theory is true, where are the Oompa Loompas, the tiny people that were running Wonka's factory? Well, Wilford mentions that whatever kept his train engine running recently went extinct, forcing him to employ small children, as he does in Snowpiercer. Were the Oompa Loompas running the fucking train and they died? <laughs> Not only does this explain the absence of the Oompa Loompas, but also thematically highlights the endings of both films, that children will inherit the future. What do you think? It's a good fan theory. Yeah, kind of weird how many similarities there are. Like it, it weirdly fits. Like I can totally see this, you know, being viewed as like another Wonka movie. If you want to, you want to go there. The protein blocks, even you know, are even shaped like Wonka bars. I mean, I, 
I mean, I think they those two different properties, but it's a good fan theory. They did a good job. Just so odd and well thought out. And yeah, I, I, I love that. And yeah, that's the reason we decided to throw this like so close to our Wonka uh, marathon we did. I mean, I was just happy to watch Snowpiercer again, but it is like, I mean, it's one of those cases where like, it's a, it's a good fan theory because they find a way to make everything make sense. Cause it's playing a fan theory. Like I, I don't really go down the fan theory route all that much. Cause I'm like, at the end of the day, it's a fan theory. I really don't care. Um, but if you can do a good job of making it all like connect and make sense, I'm I'm usually I'm pretty impressed. For me, the big one is like when he says that what recently, you know, what made his engine run recently went extinct. So he's had to use children. It's like, well, what what was running your train? <laughs> like at Oompa Loompas, that's what I'm 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 buying this. Like I'm 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 in. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're a simp for fan theories, at least. Yeah, I fucking love fan theories. I think they're brilliant. I love anything that adds another layer of excitement to something I like. It's 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 a fun thing to theorize about for sure. Uh, with that, let's talk about the. Film. I will real quick. I what? will say, how the hell do you get the fucking kid in there if that thing's constantly moving? Well, I mean they they did. Like, remember, that's what I'm saying. Remember, Curtis had to put his damn hand in there just to get the kid out. Was there another door somewhere that got you under there? Probably. Yeah, Wolford didn't, you know, I think once Wolford realized, oh, he's not going to play ball, he didn't tell him the little details. But yeah, I'm sure that the method to getting a kid down there is not throw your arm down there and freeze up the gears. I like it is. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about some favorite moments from the film. Uh, we got best scene, best performance, best music moment, and best line. Where would you like to start? Let's go with best performance. Okay. Who, in your opinion, wins the movie? I actually got to give this one to Chris Evans out of all of them. Okay. I I really do think, like, if you take into account, this is, like, at the peak, at the absolute peak of his Captain America uh, tenure. Um, when it was like, that's all you really saw on us was like this, you know, quote unquote boy scout that, you know, saved the day. Yippity doo da, right. And Captain America, not that the sequels obviously had some different layers to it that he explored, but to really see someone, the type of character he plays in this movie to me, of this quiet resilience and this guy who doesn't want to be a leader this time, but it kind of gets thrust upon him. And then we get the, you know, there's a big review out there as to why he was friends with that one guy. So you know he's not even that really that great of a guy, but he is adam he's determined to get to the front of this damn train. Um, I, I think what Chris Evans is doing in this is fucking amazing. And it's all in the subtleties of his performance. I really fucking like him in this movie. I agree. He's really going outside of his his uh his box here and he didn't have to this was between the avengers and winter soldier so he he was good like he had work he didn't need to do something like this he wanted to do this to expand his you know his his range and also to work with bong joon ho and yeah he is a fantastic you know anti-hero really you know he's got a dark dark past and he's trying to kind of make up for that by you know changing the lives of all these people and uh, yeah, I thought he was fantastic, but I got to give it to Tilda Swinton. She's really good in this. She was my second choice. What a despicable bitch. Just, you know, the the perfect representative of 
the, you know, the 1% just spitting on the poor. It's that concept personified. And it's just, she does such a great job. The way she like, you know, her the way she holds her teeth, the glasses, the way she kind of like looks at everybody with this like bleh, kind of, you know, eye vomit. It's it's so great. And then when they when they take control of her and she immediately goes to like, oh no, I don't give a shit about Wilford. Kill him and keep me alive. Huh? How about that? Like she's complete she doesn't believe in anything. All of her everything she says is bullshit. She's just a self-serving, you know, in the moment frivolously loyal person like it's all and as soon as she tries it as soon as she gets an opportunity to get her hands on a gun she grabs one and they just kill her it's so great she's like it wasn't me like what the fuck are you doing you're such a snake oh yeah and again that's i think why i have to also go to chris evans and for for myself because you have like two scenes in particular where like if he was captain america you know like when um the the bridge tunnel fight scene he has that moment where he can either save his buddy yeah. or get killed to Swinton. You know, let's be honest. If it was his Captain America trying, he would have saved his buddy. Let the bad guy go. We'll get get that bad guy another day. This movie, he goes. I have to continue the mission. He doesn't, and you can see in his face he doesn't want to, but he does it because he's like, I got to keep going forward. I got to get her, which causes his friend to get fucking killed. And then in this scene, you're talking about when she has that moment of like. Oh, I, that wasn't even. I didn't mean to start all that. And he just fucking shoots her right in the mouth, actually, <laughs> without hesitation. Just fucking grabs that gun, walks up to her, and executes her. And I'm like, okay, goddamn, Chris Evans, here we go. Yeah. Her whole, like, you know, be a shoe speech where she just, oh, this guy who tried to save his kid. Like, God, yeah, know your place. Goddamn. Yeah. Way yeah, to go. No. Turtle Swim's great. In this and like oh I I loved when he made her eat the fucking damn protein bar when she tried to get some sushi. <laughs> you eat this, and her just like the way she slowly puts it in her mouth, like she knows what this is. Like ironically, Tilda Swinton was the only cast member who actually did enjoy eating those. It was like a a mixture of like gelatin and like some protein thing. It was she 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 thought it was pretty. Good. It was like a maple protein Jello bar. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I. I. I do like. And he asked her. You know what this is made of? And she immediately goes, "Yeah. Yes." When I first saw this, I was worried it was it was people. Like that's what that's what I thought it was. But I mean, it's not like roaches are any better. But I was like, roaches are not better. But yeah. No. Tilda Swinton is pulling. She's always like solid. Anything you put her in. Yeah. Um, but she is phenomenal in this movie. I I did like she plays such a despicable fucking bitch in this movie, but it's like Tilda Swin, so you can't look away. Yeah. They were they were the only two I really considered. I think, you know, I love John Hurt's performance in this, but I do think it's a little he's not he's not in it enough to really be considered. Same with Ed Harris. Like they have their Honestly, moments, but they're not like throughout. Yeah, I had those two. Um, Ed Harris, you know, he's only in the end, but he does he he chews that scenery up when he pops up. You can tell he's enjoying his like his his role. Um, Wilford, I did, <laughs> I did actually put a song song Kang Ho on on it too. I thought he was actually really good because of his intro. As like you think he's just this chrono addict that is kind of useless, minus getting through the doors. But then, you know, you have the big twist at the end where it's revealed, like, this is actually why he's stashing up on all the chrono. And this is why he's doing all this. And he's actually a pretty decent guy. And I I really liked him in this movie. 
I love that little fight he has with Edgar where Edgar's like, you know, hurry up. And he's like, I'm opening the door. And he's like, you know, <laughs> all you do is keep snorting that shit. And he's like, well, you you keep giving it to me. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, you, you give it to me. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's always great. Yeah, I like how to get his daughter, he starts a fight instead of saying, let me open this. (laughs) Yeah, he's clearly been planning, you know, his own rebellion for quite some time, and he just doesn't want to deal with, and he wants to do it his way, but, you know, they got the Kronal, he needs it. He needs it real bad. Um, I found out Tilda Swinton actually plays two parts in this movie. What's their part? She is the uh, nightclub lady who chases uh, Nam's daughter after she grabs the bottle of champagne. Really? That was Tilda Swinton as well. I didn't know that. Okay. Good for her. Yeah. Um, Let's do music moments. Um, The score is not particularly memorable, but it does have its moments. Um, My standout was the initial start of the revolution where they realize they've got no bullets. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was good. They Chris Evans grabs the gun, puts it to his head and they shoot it. And you just hear they got no bullets. What a fucking way to prove that. God damn. I know. I was like, I really hope he uh, doesn't, this doesn't like quite literally blow up in his face. Yeah. That moment. And then the music kicks in and the revolution has begun. It reminded me of something out of planet of the apes. Yeah, it, it's a fucking hell of a way to get you guys going. Because at first you're kind of like, man, where's this movie going? Like, they keep talking about when's it going to happen, and then you get to this part and you're like, oh shit, I think it's about to happen. I think it's about to happen. I think this is the, the smoking barrel. You know, this is the inciting incident. And yeah, like music kicks in, you're on board. <laughs> yeah, that was no pun intended, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you got any standouts for the music? I actually uh, a little bit later the, the I put the part when the music kicks in when they have to run with the fire when they're in the in the damn tunnel yeah and they go fire and like the dude the epic music that plays as they are running from the back of the fucking train to get them light to that part of the car it yeah I was pumped I was pumped for them I'm like get to get get there it felt like the Olympics for some weird reason that reminded me uh retroactively a lot of the Northman. Like there was this kind of Viking shit like vibe going on there. It's like, yeah, like primal, <laughs> like us versus them, nature versus machine. Like it just had this crazy <laughs> vibe to it. I just loved. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it just like, there was like primal. It's like me being like, get, get them the fire so they can kick their ass. Let's go. Fire bad motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you had them now. <laughs> um, couple others uh these aren't from the score they're uh needle drops uh when they run into paul in the uh the the protein block factory car and uh strange brew by cream is playing i was like that's such a perfect song for this like weirdo who's been mixing cockroach bars for 20 years <laughs> like jesus yeah just yeah that, that was a good needle drop i did like the classical music that played when they got into like the the aquarium and we're eating sushi and we had like this little usage of classical music, um, kind of seemed final getting into the nicer ends of the cars. Yeah, it was a great descriptor, like you know, reminding you that you know now we're in the refined cultural section. I felt the same. I have written down um, when they get to the garden car 
it's a bit of music called Goldberg Variations, which uh, you may have heard. It's one of Hannibal Lecter's favorite compositions. Mm-hmm. It pops up in a lot of the Hannibal content. And um, it was just so like compared to the fire and the fucking blood and viscera and the cockroaches in the back. It's like all of a sudden now we're in heaven. It was like we went from he- from, you know, inferno to paradise in a weird in like one transition and everyone there is like you know soothing reading a book eating a eating a an orange and just enjoying life and it's like are these people even aware of what's going on in the back of the train it's blissful ignorance it's it's you know it's it's how the rich people are now it's how the rich are now you know like we they're aware of those homeless people out there that are living in some ways and all this good stuff and there's people really struggling but they don't care yeah, it was fact. It's a it was a good musical reminder of like the cognitive dissonance that some people just have about life. Yeah, that especially and again, if we're talking about the class that system that Bong Joon Ho loves to critique, um, the rich, the richest cognitive dissonance of like, hey, this is the lifestyle I live. I I don't know how you peons live this lifestyle. Yeah. You know, they just actively choose to ignore that. Yeah, it's like when, you know, I I remember reading an article about like Oprah talking about, you know, her success. And it's like, you know, all you got to have is drive. And it's like, yeah. And, you know, a few billion dollars might help. Yeah. Rich parents. It's it's amazing how many times you you dig into some of these celebrities. And again, I'm not discrediting, you know, like, like, for example, Taylor Swift. I'm not discrediting her success, what she's achieved. But she did not grow up poor. I'll put it like that. There's no such thing as a self-made billionaire. You got to if you're going to be that rich, that wealthy, you have stepped on a lot of people. So just own yeah. it. Just acknowledge that you're a piece of shit, and I might, you know, hate you less. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm not discrediting the success they have now, but I'm also not saying that they didn't get their either their their means weren't already there, or they didn't step on some people. And if the, there are, are there a few, I'm sure did get that big the right way. Yeah, I I think, but it's very few. Not every person's Dolly Parton. <laughs> now we, there's only a few angels on Earth, and we can't all be. We can't all be Dolly. Not all be Dolly. We should all strive to be Dolly, but we'll never get there. Oh, we'll never get there. It's to the point that like when people are like, you know, she's fake. I'm like, don't you dare say a bad word about that woman. I was like, I could care less. She's a saint. The tits may be fake, but they are protecting a very real and generous heart. Exactly. And she'll be the first to tell you that her body's fake. She has no qualms telling people that. So even she's self-aware enough to say that. <laughs> uh, we got any other music moments you want to shout? Should we move on? Uh, we should move on. No, I, no reason I even thought the Dolly thing was because, you know, everyone's comments about her wearing the damn... What was it? The Dallas Cowboys trailers? I don't even. Uh, outfit. I don't even remember. I didn't care. Yeah, a bunch of a bunch of inso guys were like, "How dare a seventy-something-year-old woman wear that kind of outfit?" I'm like, "If you have that kind of body, fake or not, and look like that at her age, who gives a shit?" Huh. Let's move on to line. Um, I was going to say line next because yeah, I don't I don't got much on music. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of great lines in this movie. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Mason's second speech after the confrontation in the tunnel, and she decides to address the uh, the the poor, the poor, the tail section people. She says, uh, "Happy Yekaterina Bridge, you filthy ingrates! You people who, if not for the benevolent Wilford, 
would have frozen solid 18 years ago today. You people who suck on the generous titty of Wilford ever since for food and shelter. And now in front of our hallowed water supply section, no less, you repay his kindness with violent hooliganism. You scum. Precisely 74% of you shall die. Like, fuck. What a, like, open revolt happening. She's like, how dare you not be grateful for all the cockroaches we've let you eat? Yeah, for keeping you on the bare minimum to survive. For taking your children out of your arms. Yeah. For clearly never giving you showers or proper beds or... God knows what kind of bathrooms they were using back there. We're freezing your arm off if you dare try to raise a hand against us. Like, why aren't you more grateful? Jesus Christ. Yeah. How dare you? Uh, Are we we not merciful? (laughs) Nice. Very nice. Uh, I love the, you know, you've sucked on the generous titty of Wilford. I love that line. That I just like imagine just like if he was it would have been extra funny if he was like sitting there, no shirt, just tits out. Ed Harris. Yeah. I I pictured like I pictured a I I pictured a fully grown Chris Evans nursing on Ed Harris. And I gotta say, I I wish that that would leave my head, but it ain't it ain't going away anytime soon. God. Oh God! Well, I'll I'll try to stay away from that. Um. Uh, one line I have uh, that I put, I put a couple. Mine are all like really small lines. Um, one after I get to my more fun ones that I really liked. It's it's from John Hurt's character. Um, when they're talking about the revolt and how he wishes he could join. Uh, Chris Evans mentioned how he wishes he could actually like fully join them. And Gilliam says the line, I'm a shadow of my former shadow. Hmm. Um, I really like that line because to me, especially once you watch it and you get to like the twist at the end, it's like, that was a hint. That was a hint that it's because he's not a shadow of his former self. He's having to live with this decision he's decided to make to keep the population in control on this on this train. So he's not he's already referring to himself as scum and that he's like worse than that to him. It's like a weird like as a film goes along, you realize that line is this guy has extreme amounts of self-loathing that I don't think any human being has had. I had totally forgotten about that twist when I watched this this time. And I was I was, I was pretty blown away by that. Yeah. And it, that's why I said like that line kind of hits me more when you find out the twist because you're like. Oh, because you know the line. Usually, it's "I'm a shadow of my former self." That's just that's the cliche. Mm-hmm. Not "I'm a shadow of my former shadow." Like this guy does not have a high value of himself, and you what he has to do to wrestle with what he decision he made, he made to keep help uh Wilford with this. It oh god, I can't imagine like that kind of like self loathing, but still going through with this this weird fucking you know, agreement he has with Wilford. Why not just let the poor in the back have like a basic life? Why not just give them water and food that you clearly have in abundance? Like, why do they have to treat them like absolute scum? It's what are you getting out of this? I don't get it. It's like you, 
I feel like you could have just treated them better and it would have been fine. Some people are not happy unless somebody else is suffering. And those are the people who like, you know, get the most in life pretty much. Unfortunately. Um, another Mason line I loved. It's right after that speech uh, when uh, Curtis like stands up to her and she says, my friend, you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doomed. Like what a crazy way to say you're about to die. Yeah, that's a hell of a way to tell someone that you're about to die. Yeah. The misplaced optimism of the doomed. I love that. That's that oh yeah. That's a good one. That's yeah, I forgot about that. Ugh. You know, granted, she she dies. Um so you kind of proved her bluff there, luckily. Um, except for everyone else that was attached to him. He a lot of his friends died throughout this movie. <laughs> no, that's why he was perfectly willing to just you know end this shit when he got to the engine. Oh, yeah. I don't blame him there. Um, One, it's not a big, deep metaphor, but for, I do have two Chris Evans lines I like to say, but I'll say those because they're more towards the end of the film. Mm -hmm. But one one line he does say I really liked um, was when after they they get her, after the bridge tunnel, they get Mason, they have her, like, they're questioning her, interrogating her, and she says a line that pisses off Chris Evans, and Curtis just pulls his knife out, runs at her, and holds the knife and goes, you can fucking die is what you can do. I'm like, ooh, boy, anger. All right, let's do this. Yeah, I wouldn't poke this bear. I mean, you've been, you know, you've been kicking this bear in the balls for 18 years, and it's finally able to fight back. So maybe shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I was like, damn, like, and the way they filmed that, you just hear the thing, hear him pull out his knife and fucking rush her. And then he says that line. And it's like, oh, shit. All right. <laughs> Yeah, this is he's not fucking around. There's no empty threats coming out of Curtis. He makes good on everything he says he's going to do in this movie. Oh, yeah. He says he's going to do it. He's going to fucking do it. Uh, speaking of Curtis, I have a feeling you are also going to have this line because it's just such a revealing character line and so twisted. It's towards the end. It's his big kind of confession speech. And uh, he's, he says, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know babies taste best. Holy shit. What a thing to hear from our hero. Yeah, that I had that was the line I was referencing myself. Yeah. And what a bold thing to do to take this guy we've kind of, you know, been along with this journey and a pretty noble guy up to that point and reveal that he in an act of desperation, you know, killed and ate a baby and was going to do it again until John Hurt intervened and kind of saved him in a weird way. Yeah, and then the further twist of this knife, you find out that the baby that got saved was Jamie Bell's character that was sticking around him so much. Yeah. And what a... I mean, John Hurt, like, carved off his own arm and threw it to the wolves and said, like, eat this instead. Like, what the hell? That's the most noble shit I've ever heard in fiction. Yeah, yeah. It, dude, the, the way he just... And it's, again, it's Bong Joon-ho just doing a wonderful job playing with our expectations and like you said you have this hero that again if this was an american made film this line would have gone thrown out completely because they want you in no way shape or form god bless our hero have shades of gray he has to be all good yeah um and any killing he did it has to be justified um 
So to have this line towards the end, will you reveal the guy that we've been following that we are on board with in a time of desperation because they weren't feeding them back there, resorted to cannibalism, ate people, ate a baby. Then you reveal even more, again, twisting that knife more, that, hey, that guy that was his friend in the beginning of the film that you watched die, he stuck around him because he felt guilty because that was the second baby he was going to eat but got saved, and they killed the mom, his mom. Like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an emotional trauma dump out of nowhere, and we're just kind of left hanging with that after, like, in the last like 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, and Chris Evans sells the shit out of this scene, man. Yeah, he does a really good job. Yeah, you want to talk about self-loathing? Fucking hell! I mean, just the amount of you know, like, he doesn't give a damn about his own life at all. He's doing this entirely for the benefit of the people in the back. And once he loses them, there's no point. Yeah, because I mean, he says it. He he he. Find out in that moment, this guy absolutely hates it. Much like John Hurt's character, you can tell on that line, you know, I'm a shadow of my former shadow. These people hate themselves. They fucking despise themselves and what they've had to do. Yeah, I couldn't eat a baby and be okay with it. Yeah. I hope. And again, it to me, again, I'm I'm glad it's not being made by an American series that would have absolutely cut all of this dialogue out. Yeah. Because again, we live realistically, we live in a world where our heroes will do some gray area shit. And to me, in this area, this doesn't turn me off from Curtis. This doesn't make me go like, oh, what a monster. They weren't being fed. He said it. They weren't being fed for like a month or two. They got desperate. They resorted to extreme means. Something that unfortunately has happened in real life for anyone that watched Society of the Snow. Ooh, boy. Yep. It's not like, so yeah, before we say like, oh, they don't do that in the movies. It's happened in real life where people have resorted to extreme methods to stay alive. Oh. And they resorted to something. And to me, what also makes it where I'm like, I'm still on his side is that he prefaces it with saying he hates himself. It's not like he sat there and was like, I can't wait to do that again. God, that was amazing. Let's keep eating people. No, he's like, I fucking hate myself for doing this. I I didn't want to do that. I was desperate. Yeah. The fantastic character moment. I think that's a good transition to scene unless you've got another line you want to shout. I have one more for you to transition the scene. Okay. Uh, and this when it's when um he's talking to Wilford, and Wilford says uh something to him. I already forgot what Wilford said, but what uh Chris Evans says in response is um that's what people in the best place say to people in the worst place. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and something along the lines of like, hey, you know, we're we're trapped too, so why don't you just stay in your lane or something like that? That's right. Yeah, he talks about how lonely he is being up front. He's like, it's just a lonely life, and he's trying to like really sell how terrible it is as if he's not living a life of luxury. And that's when he says that line. And it's true. Um, I, I think that line resonated with me because of like dumbass things we've heard celebrities say in real life. Like, um, I'm thinking like Kim Kardashian about telling women to get off their ass and work. <laughs> like, wow, it's amazing what assholes with privilege that are in the best possible place you can be will say to people the everyday person that is struggling and just trying to get by. Yeah. My favorite to this day is Craig T. Nelson. When he said on Fox news, he's like, I've been on welfare and food stamps. Did anybody help me? No. (laughs) (laughs) 
Christ. Uh, but yeah, Wilford's just, you know, he's he's living in this, you know, beautiful. He's, he's grilling a steak as he's saying this, by the way. He's grilling a steak in front of a man who's been eating crushed up cockroaches for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> We've all suffered. Yeah, we've all suffered. Just hold on. I need to make sure my steak's at the right temperature. Medium rare, right? It's like, how did how did Curtis not throttle this guy? I know, like the rage you have to be feeling in that moment of like this guy as he's cooking a steak. That at, the worst thing that can happen is that he makes it well done. Oh no! And he's been eating cockroaches in the back. Jesus. Um. Okay. Best scene. Um. My first one is 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 the reveal that the protein blocks are ground up cockroaches. I mean, what a nightmare. And Curtis just says, like, nobody else finds out about this. Like, he doesn't want them to know what they've been eating. Yeah, I, I I'm, and I get it. I don't think I would have had the guts to tell them, you know what I mean? Like, oh, dear God. All right. I have an ethical question for you. You have to eat. The block of cockroaches, or you have to eat a baby. Which one do you eat? I'm eating the block of cockroaches. I'm eating the baby. I'll I'll, I'll eat the block of cockroaches. Considering how much they were eating those things, mm. they're not that bad, apparently. Well, when it's all you have, yeah, I'm sure it's... Yeah, it's either eat this or die tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> they weren't exactly talking about flavor. Yeah, true. Uh, and besides, I don't have to kill the baby, but if someone's passing around, you know, meat, I'm eating that over the block of roaches. I'll tell you that now. Well, you are a monster. I in those in that situation, yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I don't like bugs. That's fine. I'll just, you know, if you cross that line, I'll just make sure to eat you. That's fine. Well, I will. Yeah. Okay, I don't really have it. I, I, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> Enjoy manja. I don't know. <laughs> Can you imagine why are you eating him? He ate a baby. Um, this is where I'm at now. Funny if the guys like totally get it. Carry on. Like, Carry on. <laughs> not my. What do they say? Not my. Not my monkeys. Not my circus. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> the most he asked wasn't he your friend I was like yeah was was hey, I'm not talking like Saturday afternoon you know I've got options I'm talking about apocalypse here <laughs> not like hey I brought roaches and I brought a baby what do you want to eat first that's not what's happening here <laughs> I brought dinner and dessert you decide which is which <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ Oh boy! If you're you, you better slam the door in my face and call nine one one, like immediately. Like, first off, whose baby is this, and how did I get it? I don't know. I'm be like, whose baby is this? I don't know, but we've got twenty minutes to do this, and then I got I got to run. <laughs> um, at that yeah. point, I'm looking for a new roommate. Go on. I I hope so. I'm a, if that doesn't like interfere with your criteria for a live-in roommate, then you need to up your standards. <laughs> like, infant murder, negotiable. Yeah. There's no pet snakes. 
<laughs> Can't be any more clear. No pet snakes. But again, infant murder, well, we can discuss. As long as you're clean, I don't care what your extracurriculars are. <laughs> oh, boy. This got really, really dark. Um, you asked that goddamn question. I did. That's on you. It's on me. It's, it's on me. I'm I'm happy we went there. <laughs> now you now you pick a scene. <laughs> what a segue. What a segue. <laughs> oh boy. Um actually, uh okay, let's see. Let's see. I got a lot. Let's go with the let's go with the action sequence on the on the tunnel and the bridge. That first major, like big moment action sequence. I really like like again, you know. For anyone that wants to make the argument that they cut a lot in this film, this again pre John Wick, so pre all that stuff, um, still really kick ass action. Like the 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 focus at one point on Chris Evans fucking these guys up. Um, when they have to switch to the night vision, you're watching these guys like for a minute that horror of like watching the the revolt almost get taken down. Mm-hmm. To like I said, that scene where the music kicks in, the fire is getting brought up, and they're fighting back. Like this is a really Kick ass action scene to kick this shit off with. The um, did you also notice like the 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 initial like when that scene starts and they run at the the axe people? Did that did the choreography remind you a bit of the hallway fight in Old Boy? Yeah, yeah. I bet that was a clear reference to a to a friend's work. Oh, it probably was. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sweet. Yeah, that whole sequence is fucking gold. Uh, and I love that it starts with the fucking Happy New Year. As they cross the bridge. Oh, yeah. I like how they all stop to fight. Even that one guy that's like slowly dying. You see him go like, Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I remember I I watched in the featurettes like the uh, the stunt choreographer said that this had to be very precise because these guys are not trained fighters. So it has to look like it's not choreographed, which is tough, I imagine, to pull off. So they had to look random enough to be believable. And I, th- I thought they pulled it off. I thought the fight, it looked like a mob, a desperate mob, you know, like their last stand. That's kind of, that's what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how tough that is to pull off. Cause like you want to make someone not look choreographed, but you know, for anyone who knows how movies are made, like they spend months choreographing any major action scene in any film we've watched yeah. like, months. I mean, and mind you, and this is for stuff like, Again, you know, I bring it up a lot, but like John Wick or something like that, where they get over the beekeeper here recently, where they have to actually look like they know what they're doing. Insane amounts of fucking training to make sure they know what they look look like. What so they know it? It seems like they know what they're doing. Dear God, (laughs) got tongue tied there. Um, I can imagine saying, "Hey, we need this to look good, obviously on camera, but also it needs to look like you guys are just don't know how to fight." You know, this is a mob, like you said, in its desperate last stand. Yeah. Good work. Yeah, the action sequences in this film are are fantastic. Um, I want to talk about the school car. Oh, boy. That was, for me, maybe the most unnerving part of the movie is just how... Oh, dude, this is the closest the film gets to, like, straight-up horror for me. <laughs> They're a cult. They worship the engine, and they worship Wilford as, like, a god who delivered them from perdition. It's weird. And... Did, did- did the Bioshock game come out before or after this? Because I think it came out before. Because it almost felt like that. Like something like out of fucking Bioshock. 
I saw Bioshock referenced a lot in the Letterboxd reviews. I was wondering about that. I never actually played Bioshock. I, You know, it's funny. So I thought I was going to work on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But I downloaded it to my Switch. Because I have, like, the collection for the Switch. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to work on Saturday. So it's on my Switch to eventually play now, which is which is cool. But I know the basic gist of Bioshock. I know we're, we're Netflix is supposed to be getting a movie at some point. Um but the basic gist, if you're not aware, is like the underground, underwater, underground, underwater city mm-hmm. that like it, a, a utopia under underwater that went to shit and you are exploring it. It has like first person shooter mixed with like horror elements, all this cool stuff in it. I played a good um, chunk of Bioshock Infinite and I was just kind of like, I don't really get this. And I stopped. That's because you played like the third game in the franchise. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, I can see where the, like the Bioshock references then came from, especially like I said in regards to this, like what you're talking about, with how it feels in this particular section of the film. Yeah, it's a it's a weird culty school. Um, Allison Pill plays the teacher, and um, I remembered her as her as a uh, Maggie in the newsroom, where she played a very interesting character in that. She was awesome in a Star Trek Picard. Nice, nice. Yeah, uh, but yeah, she's this weird pregnant like cult leader who's telling these kids you know like look visitors from the tail and let's sing the wilford song and like then the eggs come out and i love that like the guy's like i thought chickens were extinct and somebody says like yeah we a lot of things have been led to believe we, we've led you to believe are extinct and they pull the gun out of the fucking eggs and just, oh yeah yeah god damn the subtle nod that we actually do have bullets i'm like oh my god yeah. Um, I'd completely forgotten about uh, the guns at that point. Like it was, it was a great callback and just, Oh, what a, what a moment. Yeah. And before that, I love like the, just the horrified look on our, on our people's, like our protagonists, uh, faces as they're just watching all this unfold. Yeah. This, like, this is what the school car is. Okay. <laughs> and the teacher pulls out a gun and starts shooting at them. And it's just, yeah, eventually, you know, Curtis kills her with a knife, which was so, so satisfying. Oh, yeah, that was a good shot. Real good shot with that knife. But like the weird like schoolhouse rock video about Wilford and how like it, it reminded me so much of, you know, like, you know, watching a Hewton Mifflin documentary in, in like sixth grade about like, you know, George Washington or something. It was it was it was creepy. It was indoctrination. And, you know, in a few generations like Wilford will be worshipped as a like a god, not as a human being. Like it, it won't take that long. Yeah, which again, like I said, I get the Bioshock references that people made then, especially for this thing because it's, you know, it's main bong who was a gamer and was influenced. I don't fucking know, um, but yeah, it dude, it's just it's fucking creepy, man. It's such a creepy scene. At least a really kick ass action scene. And then, like when they make when they make the kids look out the window so they can see the the seven you know people that died trying to leave so as in don't try to leave this strain. Yeah. yeah. What a what a great sequence. It the way it's so you know weirdly calming that like you're not even thinking about retaliation when the guns comes out of the egg. Like you're not even you weren't even thinking about that, and then it just comes out of nowhere. Like it was it was very well paced that scene. Yeah, and then you know, this just also gives us that scene I talked about earlier where like Chris Evans shoots Swinson's character in the fucking face finally, because you know, then they advertise uh John Hurt's execution. So then they can be like, Now we're punishing you for what you did. 
and like they have tries that, and he just calmly just walks over, grabs the gun, and rocks her, and does what I fucking love a lot of films have been doing recently. She doesn't get her fucking monologue. She gets shot in the face and just done with this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was rewarding. Um, reminded me of uh, earlier in the movie where John Hurt, like when they have to separate and Hurt tells him, like, when you get to the end in the final car, there's Wilford. Don't let him talk. Just kill him. Like, yeah, these people are manipulators. You know, you let them talk. They're going to they're going to find a way to, to get the upper hand. Yeah, which again, kind of going back to that line I said, where he's like, I'm a shadow of my former shadow. You wonder if that's how Wilford convinced Gilliam to do what he was doing because he let him talk because he had that phone access to him. True. I mean, or it could be a complete lie. Wilford could have made that all up just to hurt Curtis. Yeah, you never know, which is what's really... um, It's it's just, it's weird because you never know, right? Because they do show that there is a phone back there. And yeah. it's in it's in Gilliam's quarters in the back. So it's like, well shit, there was a phone back there that he had access to. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you know, don't let them talk. That's how they just kill him because these people know how to talk. They know how to spin stuff. In order to get Curtis on his side, the first thing Wolford had to do was break his spirit. And the only way to do that is to tell him the man he revered was a monster who was manipulating him the whole time. With that knowledge, Curtis breaks, and now Wilford can build him up his way. So it's entirely possible he just pulled that out of his ass to manipulate Curtis. We never find out because Curtis overreacts and decides to just just and of course, you know, Nam blows up the, the engine. Yeah, I don't think Curtis really overreacted. I was like, oh yeah, I, I get your reaction. Well, I mean, shoving your whole arm into the thing. But, but I'm just saying like he, it, it, by Wilford's in oh. Wilford's eyes, he overreacted. Like, he didn't get enough time to start manipulating because Curtis went straight to to 100. Yeah, he 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 turned straight to 100. But at the same time, Wilford could have been telling the truth, you know what I mean? Like we quickly learned not everyone's who they seem in this movie. It's true. Yeah. It's 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 tough. It's it the movie does a good job making you wonder what is true and what isn't and can we trust anything. Yeah, I mean, the whole everything we learn about Wilford up to the point where we meet him is entirely built on propaganda. You know, the savior who gave us the engine and, you know, we should worship him. We should suckle the titty of Wilford. And then, right. we, meet, well, yeah, then we meet Wilford and it's, you know, Ed Harris in a bathrobe making a steak. Yeah. The guy who got laughed at when he thought this ideal, but then was like the king of everything because he was saving the few as the earth was dying. Yeah. Turns out, you know, when the, when humanity is on its last legs, be the guy with the train. That's that's good advice. It yeah. <laughs> uh you got any other scenes? Uh hold on. Sorry. I, I apparently Bill Skarsgård got arrested in Sweden. Oh yeah, I heard about that. He it's a, a drug chart. Uh, he was he was found uh he had he had some weed on him. Oh, that's it? Are you serious? He had some weed on him. He got like some community service thing. Yeah. Okay, not a big deal. Yeah, they they yeah all the headlines were like Bill Skarsgård arrested on drug charges and everyone was like what? But no, he had some weed. And they were like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, that's it's not a big deal. Yeah, no, he's fine. Um, another action. Okay, on that note, another action <laughs> sequence I want to point out 
I got really scared. I like Bill Skarsgård and what he's given us in cinema wise. I was like, oh shit. Um, uh, another action scene I want to point out is uh when the potentially homosexual bodyguard, I'm determined he was, that got mad at his boyfriend dying oh, yeah. in the in the in the bridge tunnel sequence, mm -hmm. um, decides to like hunt Curtis down. And they have that kick-ass shootout as the train's making the loop. Yeah. From the two different cars of who can hit each other first. <laughs> yeah, that dude was a fucking Terminator. That He just kept coming. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't stop. The fight scene in the sauna car was was my highlight with that guy when he, he kills Octavia Spencer and fights uh, Nam and Curtis and... You just like how you're like, how the hell is this guy going to go down? <laughs> yeah, because he's just literally killing the last remaining supporting characters we have left in this movie. No problem. And then even then, when they take him down, he he wakes up later. Like it, it was Michael Myers at the end of Halloween, just like jerks upright with no problem and gets up and starts walking back to the like it was, it was freaky. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this guy is terrifying. And all because he watched his. His buddy or lover. That's what that's the vibe I got. Yeah, they were they, they seemed pretty pretty damn close. I think they were, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Get get killed and he's like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. Fucking crazy. Um the only the only scene I have left is the uh the initial taking of the children at the beginning of the movie where uh Claude shows up and just starts choosing kids. Like and you don't know what the hell this is for. Like you're like, are they going to eat them? Are they going to like? Are they the protein bars? Like you're all these questions are in your head. Like why are they stealing children? And I love the juxtaposition of her like bright, vibrant yellow clothes, and everyone else's just like dirty, nasty clothes. Like this, you know, fish out of water thing. I think I thought it just it worked. It was a cool image, and just had you guessing like what is going on right now. And you yeah. just, what's bad, but you, you don't know where these kids went until the end when you find out like they're the ones driving the fucking train. Yeah, it oh god, yeah. The whole movie you're like, dude, what are they doing? I remember watching the first time going, What the hell are they taking the kids for? And then I remember the first time I watched, it, I got so invested, I was like, I forgot. And I was like, then we got to then I was like, Oh shit, that's right, the kids. What the fuck? This movie hasn't answered this yet. Then they show you, and I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, crazy. That was just a great establishment of like okay so they're being consistently fucked over by the rich people and there's nothing they can do about it yeah mm. solid it's it's awesome it um yeah it, that was a scene i had written down too um i remember the last scene i would like to to point out for my for my final scene is um and again it's amazing that foreign films can do cgi better than american films that cost two hundred million dollars. And on that note, my final scene is the avalanche taking out that goddamn train. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love the image of just like the entire train hurtling into the fucking pit. <laughs> like Jesus, <laughs> dude, that was so fucking good. And I love when they show you the different like rich fucking people in their cars having to now look at this. Go, oh shit, or this time is over. It's like, yeah, it's over. <laughs> Yep. Yeah.
and you didn't learn the proper life skills to be able to survive in the eternal tundra. So you are going to probably feed this Korean man for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I remember thinking like, you know what? Now's probably the best time to live in this fucking train. Cause, uh, it's on fire. It's warm. Yeah. There's plenty of meat lying around. That's for sure. And I'm not just talking about the car that had the, the chickens just hanging out. Yeah. Right. I was like, now's probably the best time to live in it. Yeah. We got an Adam and Eve situation about to happen. Last two humans on earth. So yeah, that is slightly creepy because one's a full grown woman and one's a child. Well, she's a teenager and he's a child. So give it Still. time, give it time. And yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what's going to happen. My friend. I hear you're like, now you're just like, Oh shit. Just give it time. It's what I meant. Yeah. Not, not immediately. He's like five in time. Still they're, creepy. They're the However, last whichever way you look at it, it's creepy. Happen. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some of those rich pricks survived. They're gonna be useless, but I don't know. I I do think it's funny that like after all that that Curtis did, like he 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 everyone died on that train. Like every even the the poor people he was fighting for in the back, they are dead now. Yeah, it's again nothing that you know an American studio would green light where all the big name actors are dead by the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, our hero would have been victorious, and at least the you know the people in the back would have probably taken the train and and lived a happy life. It would not have ended with literally the outcome being that everyone, including our heroes, more than likely died in that train crash. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, let's have a look at what the people over on Letterbox had to say about it on our final segment. What's in the box? Snowpiercer is rocking 3.7 out of 5. That's that's pretty good. Um, it's a 4 out of 5 for me. Yeah, I gave it a 4 out of 5 also. Yeah. Um, and I have four reviews here. All positive, but all pretty fucking funny. Um, all the negative reviews were largely just like, boo, bleh, Captain America sucks, and shit like that. Nothing nothing witty, nothing worth talking about. I gotta, gotta love when it just amounts to like, so-and-so sucks. Like, first off, you're wrong. Chris Evans is great in this. But, you know, you're allowed to have a wrong opinion, I guess. Yeah, a lot of people do on Letterboxd. Uh, this first one's from Sadiq Khan. A man traveling on a train does not like his seat, so he goes to speak to the driver. Four stars. That's, that's a pretty simple way of explaining this movie, but accurate. That's like uh, that... that... Describe a film in one bad sentence challenge over that fucking challenges that he he nailed it. I love those. Yeah, those are those are funny as hell. My favorite one was like a neglectful father and a handicapped woman go on a go on a quest to save the hand, the neglectful father's uh, physically impaired son, and it was Finding Nemo. God damn, <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, this next one's from Shay. What a wild episode of Thomas the Tank Engine. Four stars. Wait till we get, hopefully, the Dark Tower adaptation. Look at that Thomas the Tank Engine version you'll get. Oh, yeah. The Riddle Train. I remember that. Yeah. Book three and yep. four. Book three and four. Book two. What, didn't it end? Like, didn't 
Didn't that no, because it, it, it comes up at the end of book three, and then remember it uh -huh. runs into book four before they get to into the whole prologue. All uh, the flashback. The, no, the flashback that is a large chunk of the book. That's right. I for, yeah. Okay, so I I got it. It is the, the end of book. Okay, yeah. There's a lot of weird. That, those books were so fucking weird, but they were good. <laughs> yeah, very weird, but good books. Yeah. Um, this one's from Joe. Why were they so grossed out by those protein blocks when they literally ate babies and each other in the beginning? Three and a half stars. Wow. Okay. What's a roach after you've eaten a baby? I mean, you know what? He's not completely wrong. <laughs> like, it's kind of an asshole thing to say, like, guys, you ate you ate babies. Let's calm down. But at the same time, he's not wrong. Like, yeah, you guys ate a baby and you just said it tasted good. So what's what's cockroaches at this point? Oh boy. This last one's from Ciara, and this had me just laughing. Can't believe I just heard Captain America talking about eating a baby. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. <laughs> Four stars. And she did indeed watch this on July 4th, 2017. <laughs> I forget. I you know what? I get that. I, I'll never forget. I like to tell it when I first watched um, Devil's Rejects. Mm. And I found out that the one of the ladies who plays a prostitute in that movie, um, C, I think CG Daly is her name. It's the voice of Tommy Pickles, like my favorite cartoon as a kid, as a child. Mm. And for those who don't know, her intro in Devil's Rejects is talking about giving a dude a handy and very descriptive Rob Zombie detail. All the way to completion, I should point out in the her and her story she tells. I remember watching it going, "Oh no, that's that's Tommy Pickles. That's is weird." Now it's whatever. But at the time, I get it. I I see where she's coming from. I understand this lady's comment. Do 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 do. The name Pickles is very appropriate for that whole situation. I know, right? Yeah, no, I'm saying, like, I get where she's coming from. Like, if you identify him as only Captain America, which a lot of people do, and, you know, understand, so he played it for a very long time, and you watch this, and you get to the end, and he has that whole dialogue about eating people and babies, you're like, Captain America, what the fuck? Captain America, why? Yeah, so, I, I get it. You tie someone to a role that you've, like, identified them with, and then you watch something else that they do, and it, it does take a minute sometimes. You're like, oh, Jesus. The fucking happy 4th of July is what killed me. That part's great. Like, it ruined her 4th of July. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that is that is our show. I had a good I had a good time with this one. This was a good a good pick. Uh, Colton, this was your idea. Good call. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Filmgasm Productions. If you want to suggest films for us to check out, you can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com or send us a message through Facebook, Instagram, or X. Check out our Letterboxd accounts for daily reviews. You can search for me at Connor95, and in my friends list, you can find the rest of the team. Check out our website, filmgasm.com, where I have a link to my Letterboxd if you want to re read my reviews, and you can also find articles, trailers of upcoming films, and every episode of every era of our show. If you'd like to become a monthly donor to Filmgasm Productions, feel free to click on the link in the episode description. From there, click on Support This Podcast. You can choose to donate a dollar a month, $5 a month, or $10 a month. 
and all donations go right back into the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks to the entire Filmgasm team for their contributions to the show. Thanks to Cooley Cow for our awesome theme music, and thanks to you for checking it out. Next week, we stay in the world of dystopian sci-fi with one of the biggest sci-fi adventures in recent years. The centuries-long rivalry between the great houses of Atreides and Harkonnen comes to a head when House Atreides is given ownership of the planet Arrakis by the Emperor of the Universe. The Harkonnens have concocted the devilish plan to destroy House Atreides forever, and only young Paul Atreides, son of Duke Leto, can stop them from annihilating his family by fulfilling an ancient prophecy in Denis Villeneuve's 2021 Oscar-winning sci-fi thriller, Dune. Just in time for the much-anticipated sequel releasing next weekend. Can't wait. I haven't seen Dune since I saw it at the movies in 2021. I remember liking it a lot. Really neat story, and I'm looking forward to digging into the film proper. I won't be involved because I'm not sitting through this movie again. I'm not watching the new Dune. Not a not a Dune fan, are you? It's it's not for me. Who knows? I might like the Lynch one that I'm being tracked to go see uh, by Josh, but I won't know until tomorrow. Well, as of this recording tomorrow, I'll know by the time this, this episode comes out. Well, good luck. I hope you don't hate it, because if you do, it's going to be a long night. I know. I looked at the runtime. I looked at the runtime, and I, this better be good. And if if it's not, I'm not touching anything Dune for the entirety of the rest of the year. Yeah, I figured. That's why. I, thank God for the team, because I want to do Dune, and you don't. So I've got I've got someone else. <laughs> you know what's funny? I... There's a lot of Villeneuve movies I do like. Like someone I think posted like all his films he's done, and minus um Enemy, it's like the only one I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Everything else I was like, yep, I like Prisoners. I like Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I liked um Arrival, Sicario. I was like everything else I liked. It's just it was I didn't connect with Dune. It's the only one I didn't connect with. I have also not seen Enemy, but I didn't like Arrival or Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah, you're wrong about Blade Runner. You son of a bitch. I don't like Blade Runner at all. I've both of them. It's just not my. That's my Dune. Is Blade. That's, it's not my Dune. So respect my decision. I'm respecting yours. <laughs> <laughs> Until next week, think for yourself. Question authority, and don't eat any mysterious protein blocks. Take it easy. Keep watching movies, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you.